Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is our Emergency Preparedness episode number four, The Dragons of Inaction, Why We Fail to Prepare. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the psychological, social, economic, and pragmatic reasons why despite well-demonstrated trends of increasing disaster severity, we as a society continue to fail to prepare. So that's why on this episode, we'll be speaking with real-life dragon slayer, Dr. Robert Gifford, who introduces us to some of his most fearsome dragons of inaction, which, far from being mythical things, are all too real in the field of emergency management. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian. So one of the biggest hurdles faced by emergency managers is bridging the gap between awareness and action and encouraging people and organizations and all of society to prepare during the short opportunities we have between disasters. And this may be more important than ever as those gaps seem to be getting shorter and the impact of disasters seems to be getting bigger. Now, there are many different social theories out there as to why people fail to prepare. However, Dr. Gifford has come up with what I think is officially now my favorite, and he's called this the Dragons of Inaction. Now, if you haven't heard of Dr. Gifford, he's a professor of psychology, a professor of environmental studies, and he used to even be the chief editor of the Journal of Environmental Psychology. Uh, But one of his more recent works, and one of the ones he's most famous for, is his Dragons of Inaction. Now, he's come up with all of these different reasons of why people fail to prepare for climate change and called them dragons, but I think they're equally as applicable to the realm of emergency management. There are over 30 species of dragon, and he's managed to narrow them down into seven genus. And this is kind of important in understanding the podcast because we only really had him for a short time, and he kind of launches into a few of the dragons, uh, but I think it's useful to know all of them. So... To help you catch up and understand the podcast, here's a quick overview of Dragons 101, all the various genus of dragons. So first out of the gates is the classic one that we've heard of before involving the knowledge deficit model. And this results in in what we perceive to be a knowledge gap with limited cognition of the actual risk or what's going on. And the solution traditionally was to just raise awareness and to tell people about the risks or hazards and then uh, hope that they might change their action as a result of that new information. The next genus of dragon is the ideologies genus. I'm going to call this the personalization gap, the reason why we tend to refute or not internalize uh, objective information. So this could have to do with worldviews or this idea of techno salvation. You know, uh, we don't have to worry about this because in 10 years the technology will be there or system justification. And we'll talk about that one a little bit more. Another one is the idea of social comparisons, and this involves some uh, common things where we've probably heard about before, like peer pressure, but it also involves other social norms and networks, and we know that people tend to network uh, right away when they're confronted with new information or uh, a perceived threat, and understanding that process is important to, to know how people internalize the concept of risk. The next genus of dragon is a big one, and this is the sunk costs genus. And this is this has to do with the cost of change, whether it be actual financial costs, such as a financial investment that you've made that you can't change your behavior because you have so much money tied up in that, or sort of a more social costs. And we can call that behavioral momentum. You know, you spent so much time uh, gathering this professional group or uh, maybe even developing a little bit of a, a reputation that it's hard to change. 
Next up is the concept of discredence. This is the notion of trust being really important, and unfortunately, sometimes an audience may lose trust in the authority or the government that's giving them information. Whenever you involved uh, denial um, or inaccurate information or perceived lack of empathy, you risk losing trust, and then it's really hard to communicate your message. The next genus is the perceived risks, and I'm going to call this the fear of change. So whether it's a functional or a physical or a financial or a psychological or even a temporal risk, there's there's an absolute cost to change. And sometimes it's, uh, I just don't have the time to put into this or the money to put into this, or I literally cannot do it because I just can't deal with another thing on my plate right now. These are all real risks and real reasons that people uh, don't prepare. So perceived risks, that's a, a good genus of dragon to be aware of. And the last one is the concept of limited behavior. Now, this one deals on the surface with a lack of commitment, but there's a lot of interesting psychology at play here. One of them is, as we'll talk about, is the idea of tokenism or the rebound effect, where you do one good action and then one bad action and one good action to make up for it. So there you have it. You are all now novice dragon slayers. So I know that was quite dense, and uh, luckily we have Dr. Gifford to unpack this a little bit more. So listen carefully to this interview, recorded in late 2019 at Nate's Emergency Management Stakeholder Summit, and try to imagine each of these dragons in your own lives or your own organizations, as well as a world in which they don't exist. Yeah, my name is Robert Gifford. I've been a professor at the University of Victoria for a long time in psychology and environmental studies. Uh, the reason the dragons got started was because journalists would, uh, as an environmental psychologist, which I am, I would get calls from journalists and they would say, well, a lot of people are concerned about the environment, but they aren't doing everything that they could do about it. So how do you explain this gap between the attitudes and the behavior between thinking and preferences and actual action. So I felt compelled to try to answer those questions and I began by looking at my own textbook a little bit to look for some answers and then I started giving talks and I wrote this paper in, in 2011 <clears throat> that's been very widely cited and then this dragon notion uh, sort of took off from there as, like, uh, as looking for the reasons why people have a gap between their what they think they should do about the environment and what they're actually doing about the environment. Yeah, this gap between awareness and action is absolutely something that disaster management professionals deal with all the time. You know, yes, we know the risk is happening. Yes, we know the big one is coming, but people still fail to prepare. I had the honor of listening to your talk recently, and uh, it struck me as uh, a good lens to view human behavior modifiers through, basically. Uh, and a lot of the targeted ads for preparedness are, are very much aligned with your, your different dragons. So one of the ones that seems very pertinent right now uh, with all of the talk about flood insurance was the sunk cost idea and that investment dragon. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, <clears throat> a sunk cost is uh, something that you've acquired uh, or own that... Owning that thing means that it's difficult to change your behavior because it would be contradictory to ownership of it. I mean, the classic idea would be owning resource stocks because then it's difficult to say that that's not causing a problem. It creates what we in psychology call cognitive dissonance. That is a tension between what I own or what I'm invested in and, and changing 
behavior, but it, all, it doesn't have to be owning resource stocks or, or whatever. It can also be something like owning a car, for example. Why should I you know, take a bike if I, if I own a car sitting there depreciating or uh, where I'm paying insurance on it? Then why should I do something different? So uh, sunk costs are uh, kind of habits that we have. That is, that's how I always do it, or that's how we always do it. It's a kind of sunk cost of a different, not necessarily of a financial kind, but a kind of uh, what we call, technically we call it behavioral momentum, but it really just means a habit or a cultural pattern or personal or family habit that's hard to break. Would that apply to maybe reputation as well? Well, the social factors are in a different genus of, of dragons, but certainly the kind of feedback or anticipated feedback that we get from other people is, is a big role. I, I might be afraid of being teased for becoming a vegan or even maybe even bullied in some quarters. I have a graduate student from Alberta who's a, a vegan, and when she goes home, she gets teased a lot about not following a proper diet. So it's a, it can be a pretty strong disincentive for uh, doing uh, what the environment needs. There's always an excuse not to do something. Uh, And I I have noticed that a lot of our awareness messaging and a lot of our preparedness messaging is about providing the facts. So why doesn't that work? Why doesn't just uh, providing the facts, telling people why, what the risks are, why why isn't that enough to motivate action? Well, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, One is that we all get a lot of messages to do a lot of things like buy this or buy that or do that or help that or so one of it is just that the climate message or environment message can get sort of lost in all the messages that we receive without you know necessarily abjectly uh, refusing a climate message it just gets lost in the in the messages a lot Uh, but again if the message goes against our kind of uh, uh, lifestyle our comfortable lifestyle, then it's a threat. Uh, if it goes against our finances, like the T-word uh, tax mm-hmm. uh, goes, you know, tends to threaten our c- comfortable lifestyle, so we don't want to do that, or we don't trust the gov- what the government might do with our tax dollars, uh, so that what I call discredence, meaning not believing uh, that good will come of it, then that's a good reason for me to just continue in my... Uh, in my ways, even though I think somebody out there ought to, to fix the environment, but not me. The other uh, thing you mentioned was this idea of temporal and spatial discounting. How does that impact behavior? Yeah, we're told by the physiologists that we have a brain physically that hasn't changed for a couple of hundred thousand years. Uh, when we were wandering around in Africa, as a new species, we didn't care about what was happening five kilometers away or five years from now. So we have this kind of basic bias toward the here and now. Uh, Of course, we're capable of planning for the future, but the default is to think in terms of the here and now. So when we hear that there will be environmental problems in 2060 or something will happen in Africa or some other place, it's easy to say, well, that's too bad, uh, but right now I have to cook dinner, right now I have to write a paper, right now I have to do my job. You know. So it's easy to discount what's in the future, it's easy to discount what's happening far away. And it, that is echoed in a lot of uh, disaster survivor 
tales and and uh, and interviews where they said, you know, you think this is something that happens to other people, but not you, or it just happens to other people. Yeah, that same thing. Mm-hmm. Now. As you went through your talk, and I know um, you're taking it from the lens of climate action and whatnot, but I couldn't help but notice there are just so many similarities between why people don't take climate action and why people don't prepare in general. One of them was also confirmation bias, and this comes up all the time. Can you tell us a little bit about confirmation bias and why that impacts? Well, confirmation bias uh, in terms of climate change, of course, is uh, that we all like to be right. We like, like to be correct. We like to be reinforced for what we already believe. So there's a strong tendency to pay attention to the social media or the traditional news media that basically confirms what we already think. And then somebody on the screen tells us that whatever, that, that climate is a big problem. That's, that's confirmation bias too, if I'm uh, very convinced that there is a climate or emergency problem. But also, on the other side, that is, uh, if you don't want to believe in it, if you, if you don't have a, if you have a skeptical point of view, then there are certain channels, uh, which I think are obvious, that will tell you you're right to be skeptical about that. And so, uh, it goes against our natural tendency to be told that we're right and on the right track to listen to alternative views of of uh, the problems. Um, the other one you talked about was optimism bias, and this pops up in disaster literature a lot. Yeah, optimism bias is the idea that uh, it won't happen, it'll only happen to somebody else, uh, I'll be fine, we'll be fine, don't worry about it, uh, I don't want to make you worried, I don't want to create concern in the household, uh, so let's just let it slide, um, we don't really need to do all that much because... Uh, well, we're busy anyway, and it would take extra effort to do that. And so don't worry, uh, it'll be okay. The last one I wanted to quickly chat about was tokenism. Uh, <clears throat> in terms of the climate, it's uh, doing a little bit and thinking that that's enough. So, that, I mean, the classic thing would be that uh, I do re- recycle, so I've kind of done my part uh, when recycling is a good thing, but it's not enough. Uh, in terms of emergency management, it might be putting one can of beans in the basement uh, or something like that and uh, thinking I'm, I'm all ready now for whatever when one can of, well, people put more than, they put two cans of beans in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's still not enough uh, really to prepare for a lot of kind of disasters. Why is this harmful? Isn't doing something better than doing nothing? Uh, it's harmful because thinking that you've done enough when what is actually necessary under some emergency preparedness situations re- simply requires doing more than that. That's, and so thinking you've done enough when you haven't really done enough, according to the experts, that's the problem. Yeah, that false sense of security seems like it could False sense of security in there comes out of bit. having done a little but not really enough. So, so many reasons why people don't prepare and, and don't take action. What can be done? Well, the first, I think the very first thing is to, it's like in medicine, the first thing is a diagnosis. That is, uh, you have to realize that there is a problem. <laughs> you have a problem. Uh, and then it's figure out which problem, because different people have different problems, different, different barriers, different excuses, different people are different, rich people, poor people, young people, old people, cultural differences. So... The first thing is just realizing that there is a gap and accepting that there is a gap. It's kind of like accepting that you have a drinking problem. You, 
we have a climate problem, which is kind of like a collective drinking problem. And you, you know, like they say in AA, you have to realize you have a problem before something will happen. So then, then it's a matter of diagnosis. You know, what's what's my main climate sin, if you will, and then what excuse am I using, and then what could be done about that? How could I overcome this barrier that I have? And so, how how can we overcome the barriers? Well, part of it is is research being done by environmental psychologists and by what some people call industrial ecologists. That is, uh, which are the most impactful behaviors after all? And there are some, you know, just, you know, for example, we're told to eat local. Uh, uh, But if you eat tomatoes locally grown in British Columbia, you may be having a greater climate problem. sin than buying them from Mexico because they're heated in greenhouses and whatever. And so sometimes the conventional wisdom like eat local is not the best, although I want to say it generally is the best. So education is part of it, educating yourself about which which kinds of actions have the most impact. And industrial ecologists and others have a lot of work to do to to make it clear uh, which are the most imp- impactful acts. We know, for example, driving a car is not as good as riding a bike. But when you get into the finer granulated ideas of, say, is it better to wash your dishes by hand or in a dishwasher, things start to get fuzzier about about that. And so we need to get better about some of these kind of choices that are not as clear as should I ride a bike or should I drive my car. We, we always try to attack the problem with education about the external risks or the external things that are happening, uh, but flipping the script a little bit and, and education on how we make decisions and what impacts they actually have seems to be effective. Is, are there examples of where that's been effective? Uh, yes, I mean, and that's where you get into the different kinds of uh, messages that uh, are out there as possible uh, influences on people's behavior. So... Uh, for example, if we tell people that this that the, the climate is a global problem, uh, there's less response than if we tell people it's happening in your backyard, which it which it is happening in your backyard. Or if you tell people that they need to sacrifice, they're less willing to make an effort than if you tell people that they can be a role model for their neighbors and their family and other people in, the, in their organization. And there are lots of other similar kinds of uh, messages that have more or less impact on people depending on which side of a, a choice that, the, that, that we take in a message. Delivering an effective message uh, is one thing, but it's all kind of theory until you see the impacts of that message. How do you relate uh, and compare an awareness message to the desired output? How do you make that link and how do you know it's real? Well, you can do that kind of quasi-scientifically by asking, by uh, what we've done in our studies, for example, is to give people the two different messages and then ask them uh, either what they intend to do. And we find, for example, that uh, with an empowerment message, for example, people at least say they intend to do more than if we give them a sacrifice message. Uh, The problem with that, of course, is that in People saying they intend to do something is not a real choice. So we also do some studies where uh, we actually uh, we do the same thing, and then we actually ask people to engage in some small behavior that they don't know is related to the experiment, like say donate to an environmental organization or to make a choice between different kinds of food or whatever. 
Uh, and so uh, it's not as important as, you know, going into their home and seeing what they really do, but that's very difficult to do to invade people's privacy. So in general, we ask either people for their, their future intentions or we ask them to make some fairly small choice uh, locally or immediately that tells us that one message has had a bit more of an effect than another one. You also chatted about the, the mules and the honeybees. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, after you spend a lot of time telling people there's a big gap between a lot of people's attitudes and their behavior, uh, somebody's going to raise their hand and say, uh, that person over there, I know this person who does everything already. Uh, and th- so I call these people mules, which I mean in a positive way because they're carrying the load for other people. And I argue that uh, mules should be recognized more than we do now, uh, rewarded more than we give them a chance for now. The other uh, organism in, in, in Dr. Robert's eco-menagerie is uh, honeybees. Uh, and honeybees, uh, I call them that because real honeybees uh, are helping us uh, by pollinating our trees and flowers and whatever. But they're not doing this to help us. They're doing it for their own pure self-interest. So you take somebody who's riding their bike and they're only doing it for their health and you ask them about climate, they don't care. So that's a honeybee. They're doing the right thing for the climate, but they're not doing it to for that explicit climate reason. Or uh, somebody's trying to ride, or riding their bike because they're trying to save money. Okay, that's fine. They don't care about the climate. So I say we should reward the, the mules because they're carrying the load. We should even reward the honeybees because... What's important is what people actually do. It's not so important what they think. Thinking doesn't change anything. Doing is what changes something. That is mind-blowing because so many of the preparedness actions are, are linked between that awareness action stream. Like if you know about a problem and you understand the problem enough and you care about the problem, that will motivate action. And you're saying that an equally effective way potentially is to just focus on the actions. Are there examples, you mentioned the bike riding example, but are there examples of action-based campaigns or, or programs? Well, like, you know, let's say a, a homeowner decides to, to insulate the house and the, the, the narrative around the house is all about how much money we're going to save. Uh, so that's good. Uh, and this family is strict climate deniers, but they want to save money. So this is uh, one example of, of, a, of a honeybee in action. Interesting. So really focusing in on those, uh, that, that, that granular detail of independent actions that build up and, and work towards a, a larger goal. I'm not sure that's really happened so much in the disaster preparedness world. We're still stuck at that initial concept to, to action phase. Now, how do you make it stick? So it's very well to motivate uh, and incentivize a single action, and then that expires. How do you make uh, it turn into a trend? One of the pieces of conventional wisdom in environmental psychology is that offering people a reward, despite what I just said about honeybees and mules, uh, tends to only elicit the desired action as long as the reward is there. And when the reward disappears, the behavior tends to disappear. And the theory is because that's an external uh, inducement or incentive to do something. And so as soon as that external incentive is gone, well, why should I do it? So the general solution on the climate side, I'm not sure about emergency management, if it would apply as much there, but is to develop uh, a green identity. So if I have 
if I am if I think of myself as a green person, then I don't need external rewards. Uh, I do it because that's me. That's my kind of person. And of course, uh, you know, there can be identities that go in the opposite direction too. That is, uh, uh, you know, I am <laughs> I am a certain kind of person who is uh, who is basically that part of my identity is not green. <laughs> So, I, but identity is what's more important because then, then external incentives and rewards uh, don't uh, have to play a role in getting people to do the right thing. So, in terms of emergency management, I'm not sure if there is such a green identity is a fairly obvious concept, right? What's what what would be a preparedness identity? Uh, maybe maybe such a thing could be created. I, it doesn't sound familiar to me I think I think it does exist in kind of different terminology you know I talk about risk personalization okay and then you can prepare to be impacted or you can prepare to be part of the response you can in business continuity this happens a lot where um, you can either be a business that uh, is going to weather the storm or you can be the Walmarts or the WestJets where uh, we have a role in disaster. We've decided that our identity is not a disaster victim, it's a disaster responder. And that happens at the micro level as well um, for individuals. So I really like, I think it's very applicable. I think it's Okay, that's good. You know, I'm, I'm glad I'm here at this uh, Congress because I'm learning things about emergency management that I didn't know. And one of the interesting things is, you know, I think in terms of green identity, and you've just introduced some terms that are parallel, but I didn't know about. So I'm here to learn as well. Now, the last question is a little bit of a, a more personal one. Do you think it can be done? <laughs> you know, it, I go up and down like everybody else does, maybe, or any reasonable person would. But I, th- I, I tend to put it in the sense of uh, it must be done uh, and, or something like we have to try. Uh, and the usual way that makes sense to me that uh, has an influence on most people is, you know, what are you going to say to your you know, next generation in 20 or 30 years, if you're still around, if you're a grandparent, when they ask you, what did you do back when it became an issue? Uh, and you, you want to be able to say the right thing that, that I did. I couldn't change the world myself, but here's, here's a bunch of the things I started doing back then to do my part. Uh, and that, This idea of looking back from the future, I think, is very important for getting things uh, moving now and doing, and, and another way to put it is, if we go, if we if we work toward cleaner water, if we work toward a better environment, even if the climate has nothing to do with it, the outcome is we got a clean, we have cleaner water and better forests, and, and even if it wasn't for the climate, uh, so so there's no reason not to make every effort, uh, and and we have to be if we're not if we're not optimistic, we're we're finished, right? So we have to we have to try. Dr. Gifford, thank you so much for coming out for this epic interview. Thank you so much for the work you do. I'm glad you asked. And I'm, as I said, I'm learning something about emergency management, which I didn't know much about. So thank you. It's working both ways. So I love this approach. I think the psychology of inaction is really what's being examined here. And the dragon model is an impactful communication tool that conjures up some vivid imagery in its own right. Now, listeners will know that we've talked before on the show about the problems with the knowledge deficit model, this idea that we can just simply raise awareness and and then get change. But we know that seldom happens. And uh, addressing cognitive bias head-on really challenges some of our traditional emergency preparedness messages. 
Oh boy, does it ever! You know, emergency preparedness is just so much more than putting a couple of, uh, as he put it, tins of beans in the basement. And I, I, I really do think this is timely because COVID has forced us all to reevaluate why we're doing the things that we do. And this model is exactly that. It's it's talking about why people act in a certain way, not what they're actually doing. And and I love I love that ability to flip the script and examine kind of the well, the motivation behind why we act. And I think that that concept of tokenism uh, isn't just with, uh, you know, the public and the people who are trying to raise awareness and, and uh, get more prepared. It can be organizations as well. And we've seen that a lot, uh, you know, with dusty emergency plans that, you know, haven't been updated or, you know, token preparedness supplies that were maybe purchased and are now, uh, you know, sitting neglect somewhere, uh, you know, gathering dust. Yeah. And I'm even going to go so far as to say that we've embraced almost a culture of permissive tokenism where all you have to do is check the box make your plan put a bunch of things in a warehouse and all of a sudden that makes you prepared that is that has never been a good metric of success for preparedness but somehow because they're physical things or because it's easy to to count we've let that be the norm so i i agree josh i think tokenism it might be the fiercest dragon out there and, you know, it's, it's tricky because a lot of this stuff does go against conventional wisdom. And conventional wisdom is, is really hard to argue if, if people have innate ideas of what's going to happen or what's, what's involved with disasters. As we know, unintended consequences are actually the norm in disasters. And we see, you know, these complex interactions and, and cascading failures. I think another uh, important concept here is we have to acknowledge there's a gap between experts and the public. Experts tend to communicate and evaluate risk and communicate it very differently than the general public. And often we use technical estimates and they can miss concepts like dread risk or voluntariness or controllability, which is how the public actually interprets risk. If you've uh, looked at the work of Paul Slovic, uh, he describes this as psychometric uh, paradigm or the psychometric paradigm. And uh, it really has a lot of overlap with Dr. Gifford's uh, take using environmental psychology. Well, I learned a ton in that interview, and I really like this concept. I think it's worth exploring more. And if you'd like to maybe evaluate which dragons are your dragons for your organization, well, Dr. Gifford has come up with a dragon diagnostic matrix questionnaire, which will get you on the right track. And we'll include that in our, our show notes, or you can just Google dragons of inaction and, and follow the links. So here's our challenge to you. Tweet us a dragon that lives in your backyard or your organization's backyard and tell us about how you intend to slay it. And as a reward, we'll send you some epic swag uh, as well as a personal preparedness book entitled The Good Plan by one of our colleagues, Andrew McMullen. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Dr. Gifford for a great interview. And once again, thank you to all the emergency managers out there who are fighting the good fight against COVID-19. We're there with you. We support you. Keep it up and know that we're thinking of you. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing for local charities. Park Power is a small local business, and like many of you, it's been closely monitoring the news of COVID-19 and the world's rapidly changing circumstances. While many of their team are currently working remotely, the way Park Power does business has not changed, and their commitment to exceptional customer service will remain. Find out more about Park Power's response to COVID-19 at parkpower.ca. This episode is brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. 
The Girl Tries Life podcast is a fellow Alberta Podcast Network member and is all about showing that women are capable of anything when they have the right tools, strategies, and mindset in place. I'm your host, Victoria Smith, a stress reduction coach who is all about helping you reduce your stress so that you can actually enjoy your daily life. Imagine that. In the Girl Tries Life podcast, we alternate between interviews with incredibly inspiring ladies who break down how they got to where they are and coaching episodes that leave you with tangible resources and skills for your own life. Life isn't stressless, but we can help you stress less. So I hope that you'll check out the Girl Tries Life podcast. You can find it at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast. And remember, the most important thing in life is that you try. You've been listening to an epic podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.